Matthew 1, verses 18 to 22. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Matthew chapter 1, 23 through 25. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, good morning, Christ Community Chapel. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're here today. Whether you're here in the West service with me or over in our East service or watching online, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm really excited to start our Christmas series, our Advent series. You know, I think this is a really important sermon series. And that's because uh, this is a crazy busy season. Uh, my wife Amy and I were sitting down a couple of days ago to plot out December. We had a calendar and we were putting down all the things that we had to do for the kids or for work or whatever. And at the end of that time, I said to her, so how many free nights do we have? And she said, one. One! One, it's such a busy time of year. And here's the thing, that's not even a complaint because so many of the things that we're doing this month are so great. They're so wonderful, but they also can be distracting. They're so good and they're so fun that we can be thinking about everything during this season except for what this season is all about. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, my daughter Ella turned four this past week, and as a gift, my parents sent a Target gift card for $50. And when you go to Target with $50 at four years old, the world is your oyster. In fact, I have a picture here of Ella with her haul, okay? <laughs> so we walked into Target, and I'm trying to explain to her, okay, this card, you know, this will get us a lot of stuff. And, and I say to her, what do you want to get, Ella? And she looks at me confidently, boldly, and says, candy. I say, yeah, yeah, okay. So I take her to the toy section and I'm showing her all these cool toys that they have. And it's tricky when you have a birthday this time of year because we've also gotten her some of these toys. So I'm shielding the ones she can't have with my back and extolling the virtues of the ones she can. And I'm showing her all these cool things. Ella, check this out, check this out. She keeps saying, do you want this, Ella? No. Do you want that? No. And finally I say, Ella, what do you want? And she looks at me like I'm an idiot and says, candy. Finally, I had to get down on my knee and look her in the eye and go, Ella, no matter what, you are getting candy. And she said, oh, okay, well, I'll have that toy over there then. <laughs> but there's the thing, there's nothing wrong with candy. There's nothing wrong with candy. But Ella was letting her desire for candy actually have her miss out on the even better things that were hers because of that Target gift card. There's nothing wrong with a little holiday fun. 
There's nothing wrong with festivities and traditions and family gatherings. Nothing wrong with it at all. And I hope you go nuts and have a great time. But if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, all that candy ends up distracting us from what this season is all about. And that's what this sermon series is designed to do, kind of anchor each one of us to, hey, let's remember, why do we celebrate? What's really meaningful here for us in this Advent Christmas season? I hope to begin that with you this week. So if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to Matthew chapter 1? And hey, these Bibles, the one even that I'm using, are available to you here uh, in, in the sanctuary or uh, over in the East Hall. They're there in the pew or in the back of the room in East Hall. And if you use one of these, the nice thing about it is I can tell you that today's reading is on page 757. So if you're not super familiar with the Bible, all you got to do is turn to that number. But by the way, if you're not familiar with the Bible, they come with table of contents, just like any book. So you can always look in the beginning and find what you're looking for. But today we'll be on page 757. And as we navigate our time together this morning, let me hold out to you an outline. Three simple points I want to walk through to help us make sense of what's in front of us. Three things, and they go like this. I want to talk about the miracle, the meaning, and the message. Okay, the miracle, the meaning, and the message. All right, let's start with the first one, the miracle. You know, I got to be honest with you. Let me do a little inside baseball with you. Uh, pastors don't always love the Christmas series. It's not because we don't love the Christmas story. We do. It's just, it comes down to this. I, I, I'm relatively young, but I've been a pastor for 15 years. And it just can feel like at a certain point, I've said all of this before. You know, it, it, the story is wonderful. There's only so many ways you can tell it. And we like to be creative, to surprise you a little bit. And sometimes that's hard when you already know the story, right? And so there can be a little fatigue on the part of a pastor, and you might even feel that. If you've been a Christian for a while, you might think, I already know this. I don't know if I can gear up for another month of this story. But let me tell you something. Since January of last year at this church, we have baptized 197 people. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we can clap for that. Let's just be sure we're clapping for God because only God can do that, right? But here's the thing, a lot of them don't know the story. And so it's good every now and then to just go back to the Christmas story and say, what is this story all about? And it's good for those of us that know it uh, too. And one of the things we're going to find, we go back to the story, is at the center of the Christmas story in the Bible is a miracle. And that miracle is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now by that I mean that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not naturally conceived he did not come to be the way the rest of us came to be. Instead, he was supernaturally placed in the womb of a virgin. He was placed in the womb of Mary by God himself. That miracle is at the very center of the Christian story of Christmas. Now, the first thing I want to do is show you that it's at the center of our passage this morning. In fact, our story begins with a guy named Joseph who's engaged to a woman named Mary. Now, in the first century Jewish culture, being engaged was not like it is today. I mean, today it's pretty serious, but you can break an engagement. In fact, it's often seen as wise. Well, glad you figured it out before 
you got married. But in this culture, being engaged was basically like already being married only without some of the fun stuff, okay? It was very formal. In fact, to end an engagement, you had to actually get divorced. That's how serious it was. So we're told, for example, that when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, and when Mary told him that God did it, he wasn't so sure. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, here's what it says. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant. He He's not sure about God doing it, and so he decides he's going to get a divorce. But Joseph is a very kind man. He doesn't want to embarrass Mary, so he's going to do it quietly because he knows what this means. He doesn't want to marry a woman who's unfaithful. He doesn't want to submit himself to the rumor mill, to the gossiping, to the wondering about whose baby he's raising, and so he decides to divorce her. It's clear from this part of the story alone that whoever the father might be, Joseph knows it's not him. And so he's going to get a divorce. But then an angel visits him. He doesn't have to just take Mary's word for it that God did it. He he has an angel talk to him. You can read about this in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God did it, Joseph. That baby that's in her is not from the normal course of action, is not belonging to someone else in town. That baby is from God. And in fact, the writer is so concerned that we know about the virgin birth of Jesus that he tacks on at the very end of the story this sentence. At verse 24, it says, When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The writer says, even after he married her, she was pregnant. He withheld a certain part of marriage in order that there would be no doubt that that baby wasn't his. That baby was from God. Interestingly enough, by the way, Matthew is the only gospel that tells us Joseph considered divorcing Mary. And the reason why is because Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And Matthew knows how a first century Jewish audience is going to respond to the idea that you're engaged to a woman who ends up being pregnant with someone else's baby. The scandal of this is not lost on Matthew, which is why three different ways in a few verses, he is telling us this baby is from God, born of a virgin God himself in the flesh. And not only is this what the Bible teaches, but this is what the early church believed. The first Christians. In fact, as Christianity was spreading around the world, people were were asking about this new religion and and what does Christianity believe and and what do I need to believe to be a Christian? What, What do I have to agree to? And so the church did or formed councils and issued creeds or confessions, small distillations of the Christian faith saying, this is what you must believe to call yourself a Christian. There are two I want to share with you, the Apostles' Creed 
and the Nicene Creed, the two earliest Christian confessions, and they both include statements about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Here's what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, the his here is God, I realize you don't have the context, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Here's the Nicene Creed. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So you see, not only does the Bible say unquestionably that Jesus was born of a virgin, but the earliest Christians said, if you want to know what we believe, and if you want to know what you must believe to call yourself a Christian, the virgin birth is one of those things. Now I say all this because I know there are churches in America right now, here in Northeast Ohio as well, who have Christian on their sign, who are gathering and saying things like, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. That it's really more of an idea, it's really more of a metaphor, it's really more of a philosophy. Of course, as modern people, we don't have to believe in this supernatural, not biological reality that you can call yourself a Christian and deny the virgin birth. And I'm just telling you, you absolutely unequivocally can not. To do that is to be at odds with the Bible. To do that is to be at odds with the earliest Christians. Certainly, it makes sense to understand that we as Christians, 2,000 years after the events of the Bible, are not the ones who define what the Christian confession is. The earliest church said there are a number of things you must believe, and one of them is the virgin birth, which means if you're here this morning or watching online and you think of yourself as a Christian, but you deny the virgin birth, you are at odds with a biblical, historical understanding of Christianity. You can call yourself a Christian, but that isn't what the Bible would call you. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, that any consideration of becoming a Christian would mean not just wrestling with, but coming to believe in this idea that Jesus was born of a virgin. There is a miracle at the center of the Christmas story that must be believed. Now, it's obvious for you to ask, why? Why do I have to believe that? Well, that's my second point, the meaning of the miracle. Why do we have to believe? Why is it so important that we believe this miraculous thing called the virgin birth? Well, there are three reasons, actually, why it is so important, why it is, in fact, indispensable to the Christian faith that Jesus is born of a virgin. Let me lay them out for you. Here's the first one. God must keep his promises. That's the first one. God must keep his promises. I don't know your level of familiarity with the Bible, but if you were to sit down and read the Bible, what you would find is that it is, this, it is a book about a God who makes and keeps promises. That's actually how he relates to people. He is always making this inc these incredible, extravagant promises, and then you're kind of waiting around to see if he's going to keep them. And here's the thing, for you to really trust him the way that he wants to be trusted, he has to bat a thousand. 
The promises are so big and so great that, that any sense that God breaks his promises, fails to keep them, undoes, undoes the whole thing. And you may not know this, but 700 years before Jesus was born, God had made a promise. In fact, it's quoted here for you in this passage. You can find it in our passage. There's in quotations, and it's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah was a prophet. And during his life, there was a particular time where there was a guy named Ahaz who was king. And Ahaz's enemies had made an alliance. And the basis of the alliance was everyone hated Ahaz. Okay, that's all you had to agree to be in the group was, do you want Ahaz to die? Yes, I do. Welcome in. And they're coming towards Ahaz. And Ahaz cries out to God and he says to God, God, don't you care? Don't you see Aren't you going to keep your promises to your people? Aren't you going to come through? God, don't you have a plan? And God says through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, yes, I do care. Yes, I do see. Yes, I do have a plan. And here's the sign I'm going to give you that you know I see and care and have a plan. And then this is what he says. It's quoted for us in verse 23 of our passage. It says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, God had said, put me to the test. Here's how you know I care. Here's how you know I see. Here's how you know I have a plan. A virgin will have a baby, and that baby will literally be me with you. So you see, it really comes down to whether or not God means what he says, whether or not God keeps his promises, whether or not God can be trusted. You see, the Bible isn't just full of promises God has made in the past. It's full of promises he has made for the future. Like, for example, that when you die, you will raised from the dead, that there's a heaven, that there's a kingdom that we can be part of with him forever. And you see, I can never believe those promises if I don't believe that God always keeps his promises. So the virgin birth is indispensable. He either keeps his promises or he doesn't. Here's the second reason it's meaningful. Because it's God with us. So the Bible's very clear that this is, this is not who God is. God is not the father who sends a friend or an employee to his son's baseball game so that he can film it so that the dad can watch it later. Like a guy sitting in the stands going, hang in there, buddy, your dad loves you. He wishes he could be here, but he's going to see this video. God doesn't send a proxy or a priest or a prophet or a preacher you like that alliteration? In case you were wondering what we pastors do all week. God doesn't send a prophet or a priest or a proxy. That's what every other religion says. Every other religion has a prophet or a leader sitting in the stands telling us, hang in there. God loves you. That's why he sent. He hates that he can't be here himself. He hates that he can't tell you this himself. But he loves you. You see, Christianity says God isn't like that at all. God is like the dad in the front row with the team hat on and the team shirt on, waving a flag saying, here comes a hitter. He's the dad who shows up himself. 
You see, the virgin birth says, do you want a God who always speaks to you through intermediaries? Do you want a God who loves you by proxy? Or do you want a God who actually cares enough to come himself? And then here's the third reason it's meaningful. Not just because God has made a promise and not just because I want God to come himself, but because he has to do what only God can do. Look at verse 21. It says, you shall name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, the Bible tells us that we were all born into rebellion with God. We're not just born into it. We participate in it from the very beginning. Don't believe me? Hang out with a two-year-old. They're awful people. (laughs) The Bible says that each one of us has ignored God, refused God, rejected God, run headlong into unrighteousness. And even the good that we do, we do it with pride as though we would say to God, now you have to love me. Now you have to accept me. Now you have to welcome me. Look at all the good things that I've done. But the Bible says it's not enough. And certainly you and I would say, if God knows every thought in my head and every feeling in my heart, if he knows not not only what I've done, but what I wished I could have done, what I would have done if I thought I could have gotten away with it, then there's no way I could not stand for his judgment. And you see, prophets and priests and proxies and preachers, they can tell us that God will forgive us, but only God can actually do it. This is like when one of my kids is disrespectful to their mother and their relationship is strained with their mom. Can you imagine if they came to me and said, Dad, I was really rude to mom. And I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. I forgive you. What good does that do? See, the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, not a regular man. So he's not a sinner like you and like me. In fact, if you read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and my story is that by reading it, I met him. I hope that would be yours as well. But if you were to read it, what you'd find is he's nothing like us. He has no secrets, no lies. He's always zigging where we zag, zagging where we zig, being the person we wished we could be. So that in his life, to stand before God is to only expect a welcome. But Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, he who knew no sin becomes sin. He takes on the sin of the church, willingly, joyfully surrendering so that God might pour out his anger and his judgment and his wrath for my sin and for yours onto Jesus, that Jesus might willingly die up under that judgment so that when he raises from the dead and says to us, I've lived in your place, I've died in your place, and if you grab hold of me, you can be forgiven. He's not the dad saying, mom will forgive you. He's God himself saying, I forgive you. You don't want a proxy You don't want a priest. You don't want a preacher. You don't want a prophet. You want God himself looking at you and saying, I forgive you. You see those churches that are telling you that you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. They're trying to help you. They're trying to take out a difficult and awkward bit of your theology that might be a little embarrassing at a cocktail party but they aren't 
helping you. They're dooming you. Because without the virgin birth, God is a liar. You can't trust him. You can't hope in his promises. Without the virgin birth, all you get is a guy named Jesus that God decided would be his special spokesman. You get Jesus with an iPhone at the game saying, hang in there, buddy. Dad wishes he could be there. Without Jesus being born of a virgin, you get a priest saying, I'm pretty sure God will forgive you, not God himself. Friends, you're not just giving up a doctrinal truth. You're giving up any hope you have. Don't do it. Don't do it. The virgin birth is an indispensable part of our faith because of its meaning. I know you might be saying, I know all this. I know all of this. But what difference does it make today? Well, that's my third point, the message. It's not just the theological meaning, it's the, the message. Listen, my family, probably like a lot of yours, at Christmas gives gifts. I love to give gifts. I'm involved in, in shopping for all of them. I'm involved in wrapping. That part really means I spend time with Amy while she wraps them. But I'm there, I'm there. I love to give gifts. Gifts are such a wonderful way of saying to a person, you matter to me. And a few years ago, one of the things we started doing that I really like in my family is once we've bought all the gifts, we go to the store and each kid picks out their own wrapping paper, which makes for a really ugly Christmas tree, okay? But a super cool thing. So this is my son, Graham. He's six. Uh, he was hanging out with me this morning, so I asked if I could take one of his. And he picked Charlie Brown Christmas wrapping paper this year. Which means on the nights where Amy and I wrap Christmas presents, two, three, four, however many we get to that night, and he comes down, he's not just looking for any package. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter if there's a package under the tree. He's looking for Charlie Brown because if Charlie Brown is on that package, it's his. And what that Charlie Brown package is screaming to him is mom and dad love you, Graham. You matter. You have value. You are loved. Not just kids in general. Not just this family in general. This is your wrapping paper. This is your gift. Gifts are powerful. One of the best gifts I ever received a few years ago, Amy and I went on a trip over a weekend for my birthday. Went to a different city in a different state. Just spending time together. And uh, one night we we're going to go out to dinner. And I, I love to go out to dinner. And it's your birthday, so you get to blow it out, right? Almost every time we go out to dinner, Amy spends the first half of the dinner trying to convince me to split. Okay, like the rest of you cheapskates. <laughs> I don't want to split. But on your birthday, you don't have to. No one asks you to split. And so I just decided on my birthday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get everything I want. I'm going to get the appetizers, the desserts. I'm just going to have everything that sounds good. And I, and I blow it out. And, and then at the end, I say to the waiter, can I get the check? Because unfortunately, in adulthood, when you blow it out, you got to blow out your, your wallet, right? you got to pay for it. And the waiter says to me, actually, it's, it's already covered. And I thought, oh, that, that can't be right. I mean, that sounds great. can't be right because I'm in a different city, in a different state. Nobody knows me here. And Amy said, here, and she slides across a card across the table to me, and the card is from a friend of mine. And he said, hey, I wanted to do this for you for your birthday, but I didn't want to tell you in advance because I knew Amy would make you split. <laughs> Love you. He said, I wanted you to get everything that you wanted. 
because you matter to me and I love you. Happy birthday. And I got to tell you, in that moment, I felt so seen. Do you know what I mean? I felt heard. I felt valued. I felt loved. Not generically, specifically. That's the power of a great gift. Friends, that's the story of Christmas. It isn't just that God sends his son, that God comes himself, that God is born of a virgin. It isn't just that there's a present. It's that the present has your wrapping paper on it. It's yours. You are seen. You are valued. You are heard. That's why I love the Christmas song, Oh Holy Night. You know this one? Love it. Best Christmas song. And it says this, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Do you know, you know the next line? You can say it with me if you want. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The way you always do when you get a great gift. You know, that's not true of every world religion. Buddhism, for example, teaches that there is no self. This is why. Because they say, if you buy into the idea of a self, meaning I want to be seen and I want to be valued and I want to be heard, you will suffer. That's what Buddhism says. Because you will not get those things. And Christianity says, nah. You should want every one of those things. And you will absolutely get them. In the birth of Jesus Christ. Friends, are you worried that God doesn't see you? doesn't love you, isn't paying attention, isn't invested? Are you worried that in the long run there aren't going to be any gifts for you in store? Christianity is a missile to that. You see, all year we leak. All year we leak. All year it's hard, and so we say, God must not be watching. God must not be paying attention. I must not matter. I must not have value. I must not be loved. And then every year, here comes the Christmas story saying, absolutely not. God loves you so much. You're so seen. You're so valued. You're so wanted. You're so welcomed. You're so loved that he didn't send a priest or a prophet or a preacher or a proxy. He came himself. And we know this. We know this because of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And that gift, friends, not just a gift, it's got your wrapping paper on it. Let me pray for us. God, I feel like I say this every week, but it's such a joy to stand up here and say such wonderful things about you. But it's even more of a joy to know that you actually make those things true. You are, in fact, wonderful, loving, kind, merciful. And your desire really is for every single person in this room to grab hold of the gift of the virgin born, Jesus Christ, living and dying in our place raising from the dead as our hope. In his name we pray, amen.